Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. where we start with a random article, explore it, and then follow the links and see where it takes us. John, what did you get this time? This time, I got Larissa Football Clubs Association. <laughs> it's a group that plays soccer in uh, the Larissa Prefecture of Greece. Hmm. Okay. I got... Lorenzo de Sepulveda. He's a Spanish writer, best known as the author of Romances in Verse. I feel like I've heard of that guy, but I don't know why. Hmm. And I don't feel like talking about soccer. (laughs) So. Alright, well, let's start off with the dude. Lorenzo de Sepulveda. I'm glad this guy has his own article. It says right here, little is known of Lorenzo de Sepulveda's life. Well, great. <laughs> what a good, what a good article. Then, <laughs> so relevant for nothing. <laughs> Descended from a notable family, and lived most or all of his life in Seville. But nobody knows because nobody knows about his life. (laughs) Well, he was an author of the romances, and romances in the Spanish language had been a form of narrative poetry popular since the Middle Ages, and they were almost entirely orally transmitted. So they were just kind of like legends or myths that people would passed down from generation to generation and it says that they changed as they passed on and you know they had their themes of legendary heroes and then kings and knights and such Um, this Lorenzo guy was born in 1505 died 1580 so long time ago it says that uh, though uh the romances by Sepulveda is largely credited for really establishing the romances from the Spanish language in written form, but another guy by the name of Alonso de Fuentes was actually someone who published a less successful version of it a year earlier. This guy is just the guy who wrote the definitive collection that people actually latched on to. There's actually a link to Chronicle on here. We wanted to get meta. <laughs> what? But the Chronicle is what he put together. So his source of um, putting together this Chronicle of Romances 
um, was a compilation of medieval chronicles initially commissioned by Alfonso X, a.k.a. Alfonso the Wise in 1264. Oh, so he's more like an Alfonso the Tenth. Yes. Okay. <laughs> not uh, actually Alfonso X, not like a Malcolm X type thing. Like, <laughs> I just think it's much cooler if you just say Alfonso X. I mean, it is, <laughs> albeit a bit misleading. If I was him, that's probably what I would call yeah. myself. <laughs> On the tenth, all right. Call me X. <laughs> if I was the sixth, call me Snake. <laughs> oh, there's a link to the Moors. Ooh, the Moors. Not the moops. No. No, the the people that fought the Christians. Yeah. Yeah. So it says that the romance has gained wide popularity and was reprinted several times. Several of them became the canonical version of their legend, although they are no longer much read today. Hmm. So something that kind of got the ball rolling on Spanish literature up until that point that no longer is paid much heed. So it would seem. Well, there are several places to go from here. We can go to Corella Seville (laughs) or Romances. We can learn more about Alfonso X. (laughs) Alfonso X. Parentheses, oh. Alfonso the Wise. Mm. Figure out why he's wise. <laughs> it's also El Cid. El Cid. And of course, if you want more, but wait, there's Moors. There's Moors. <laughs> <laughs> there's always Moors. I don't know. You feel like going into more people or peoples? Or just general words. There isn't much of a choice here, which is unfortunate because there's a lot of stuff going on in this article, but just not many links. Right. Yep. Whoever edited this really dropped the ball. Not a lot of citations either. I wonder if I could edit this article and insert a bunch of links for us to go to. That would be interesting. We could do that, but it would also feel disingenuous. It would almost feel like cheating. Because then we could steer the podcast (laughs) wherever we wanted to go. We have to deal with whatever stupid edits have been made (laughs) on the the article once we get there. Those are the rules. Like, we... We're already pretty fast and loose with them. (laughs) If we got much looser, we just wouldn't have rules. It would just be us cruising the internet talking into microphones. (laughs) All right, well, I, I think... I'm kind of interested in seeing what Alfonso X is all about. Fair enough. I want to see why he's wise, you know? Yeah. Like, that, that's a little interesting. So we're going back in time about 300 years. Uh, a lot of different spellings of his name. Using PH instead of F and changing up the last letter. But he was a king. He was the king of Castile, Leon, and Galicia. From 1252 until his death in 1284. Says that a a dissident faction during the uh, imperial election of 1257 chose him to be king of the Romans. (laughs) 
on the 1st of April. But April Fools, <laughs> he renounced his imperial claim in 1275. And in creating an alliance with England in 1254, his claim on Gascony also. Gascony. Yeah, I don't know what a Gascony is. <laughs> oh. So he fostered the development of a cosmopolitan court that encouraged learning, perhaps where he got the wise from. He is sometimes nicknamed the Astrologer. So he's got many, many names. Or maybe just two. Could be only two. But it looks like he has like five others. <laughs> just because of the different spellings of Alfonso. Uh, yeah. You got your Alphonse, your Alphonse, Alfonso, your Alfonso. <laughs> you got a lot of different Alfs. Nobody just wants to call him Alf. It's a shame. Maybe just Al. You can call him Al. Or Mr. X. Bum, 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 bum. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, whoa. Alfonso ins, uh, succeeded his father as King of Castile and Leon in 1252. And the following year, he invaded Portugal. Whoa. Yep. And then it says, oh, wow. Okay. So the King of Portugal at the time was Afonso Third. <laughs> wow. Alfonso versus Afonso. <laughs> And unfortunately, Afonso had to surrender. And then he consented to marry Alfonso X's daughter, Beatrice of Castile. Beatrice! And then the land would be returned to their heirs. So basically, he invaded Portugal, forced the um, king to marry Alfonso X's daughter, or to marry his daughter, and then said, hey, you can have your land back, but it's going to be your children, who will also be my grandchildren. That's uh, kind of dastardly, I would say. Yeah, it's a little, little, little villainous. You know, a little villainy going on in the state of, I think, mostly France. So he signed a treaty with the King of England, supporting him in the war against France. And oh, then so these are Spaniards. Okay. Right, yeah. That makes more sense. <laughs> and then in the same year, his half-sister married Henry's heir to the King Henry's heir to the throne, Edward. And then because of that, Alfonso X renounced forever all claim to the Duchy of Gascony, which is French. To now. which Castile had been a pretender since the marriage of Alfonso VIII of Castile with Eleanor of England. So I don't know what what is a pretender, like how, what is being a pretender? Faking it, you know. I guess so. Maybe but he was just like, hey, I I own this stuff, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I'm yeah. around it. <laughs> I own the stuff near it, so I probably own it too. Mm, maybe. <laughs> Everybody's just like, oh, okay, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Nobody else really wants it, so sure. So he had the Libro de los Juegos, or the Book of Games, translated into Castilian from Arabic, 
and added illustrations with the goal of perfecting the work. So, I don't know what that book of games is, but there is a link to it. That's interesting. It kind of goes hand in hand with what we were talking about before, too, the romances. Mm. So that would be a good thing to go to, I think. Kind of following the same rabbit hole, not yeah. getting distracted. Yeah, he commissioned chronicles and translations, and he co-authored many works of music. So he did a lot of stuff. But it seems like he was also a pretty a pretty cultural guy. Like he was relatively well-balanced. He wasn't just this uh, militaristic monarch guy. He also was concerned about books and culture, which is probably why he did this whole Libro de los Juegos, mm. or Book of Games thing. I just wonder what kind of games would be in that. Well, put it on. <laughs> All right, let's go, let's go to Book of Games, see what's, in, what's up in that. Libros de los Juegos. Whoa, so the book contains 97 leaves of parchment, many color illustrations, and contains 150 miniatures. Uh, how does it contain miniatures if it's a book? I mean, like, miniatures meaning the type of, like, drawing, I think. Ah, okay. Hang on, let me make sure. Yeah, I believe you are correct. Yeah, not actual miniatures. It's a book. Right. Be reasonable. (laughs) Uh, apparently, there's some craziness, um, contradictory elements in this article here. The text is a treatise that addresses the playing of three games. A game of skill, or chess. A game of chance, or dice. And a third game, backgammon, which combines elements of both skill and chance. The book contains the earliest known description of some of these games including many games imported from the Arab kingdoms. How that is contradictory, I do not know. Hmm. That doesn't sound contradictory at all to me, but... Yep. Wow. So these games are discussed in the final section of the book at both an astronomical and astrological level. They really got, um, you know, crazy philosophical about their games. Well, uh, apparently... uh Alfonso X conceives of gaming as a dichotomy between intellect and chance. Hmm. So it's learning to synergize both your mind with the element of stuff beyond your control. Hmm. And it is one of the most important documents for researching the history of board games. The only known original is held in the library of the monastery of San Lorenzo del Escorial near Madrid. I can see why there would only be one copy. Everything <laughs> that I've seen from this book is very, like, colorful yeah. and real nice. It's mm-hmm. interesting to note that the text may have been influenced by Frederick II's text on falconry. <laughs> of all the things to make a book about games on, you base it off of falconry, a falconry textbook. It's a little weird. Oh, wow. This thing contains extensive... Ex- an extensive collection of writings on chess with over 100 chess problems and variants. So they were already getting to the point where they realized it wasn't really a game of chance at all. (laughs) It was still pretty much just a game of intellect. Right. Interesting, though, is that it uh, has an entry that is called Chess of the Four Seasons. Mm. The game is a variant for four players. Described as representing a conflict between the four elements and the four humors. Hmm. 
these chessmen are marked correspondingly in green, red, black, and white. And pieces are moved according to the roll of dice. Alfonso describes a game entitled Astronomical Chess, which we already discussed. Briefly. And, uh... Wow, that's really making your money's worth out of the chessboard. <laughs> making it like three other games. Yeah. But this Astronomical Chess is played on a board of seven concentric circles divided radially into 12 areas, each associated with a constellation of the Zodiac. That sounds like one crazy game of chess. That would actually be fun to play. Yeah. Just to see how we would have that come to pass, really. Mm. I didn't realize Backgammon was that old. Well, again, this is one of the first mentions of it, so this might be all the further back it went, really. Yeah says here that multiple artisans worked on the uh, as a collaboration on this book. Uh, you can tell because some of the illustrations made to describe certain things are full page, some of them are half page illustrations, mm -hmm. and they have a very wide variety of framing styles for the pictures themselves within the text. Hmm. So you see different artisanal styles going on in the book as you go through it. That makes sense. I mean, all these yeah. color pictures back in medieval times <laughs> wouldn't have been the easiest thing to pull off if you yeah. didn't have those kinds of people at your disposal. Wow. They really go in depth here on how the uh, styles of the figures in the books are portrayed because there's a lot of themes in uh, classical uh, pictures and art mm -hmm. that seem to be noticed and picked up on and taken as like general rules of thumb. But there are three paragraphs here where they talk about how in certain miniatures, the figure on the left side of the board faces the reader while the figure on the right leans into the board with his back to the reader. <laughs> in other words, each player is leaning on his left elbow. <laughs> <laughs> They, they, they go through every single picture and figure everything out. Wow. Kind of spell it all out for you. Hmm. Yeah, it looks like it's a um, kind of a combination of several different styles of art. You've got Byzantine and Classical and Romanesque all mixed together. Hints of Gothic. Mm -hmm. It's crazy to think of. The under the significant subheading, it says that uh, very few original works were produced by Alfonso X, the Scholar King, mm. relative to the huge amount of work that was translated under his auspices. This enormous focus on translation was perhaps an attempt by Alfonso to continue the legacy of academic openness in Castile, initiated by Islamic rulers in Cordoba, where the Emirates had also employed, get this, armies of translators <laughs> in order to fill their libraries with Arabic translations of Greek classic texts. Wow. Armies of <laughs> translators. Yeah. That's a pretty badass army right yeah, there. Yeah, That's kind of cool. Yeah, I can see why he was the wise, translating tons of stuff, trying to promote learning and Yeah, knowledge. just trying to make people more aware of their surroundings, what's going on. Mm -hmm. But not only like what's going on, but also how they can enjoy themselves. Yeah. It's kind of neat. Oh. Apparently, <laughs> I don't know, this is a weird um, section here under Legacy kind of seems more about just Alfonso X than the book itself, but 
says he captured the kingdom of Mercia. So he captured several different places. It might be interesting to check this book out if um, ever in Spain. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't see myself getting over that way <laughs> too soon. Yeah. So where should we go from here? Going to the history of board games, even though we've already done an episode of board games. But we didn't necessarily look into the history of them. Well, still, where else is there? <laughs> There's dice. We got um, parchment. Got uh, Alfonso X. We can go back over to him. Go back to Alfonso X. <laughs> no, we're not going to back to Alfonso X. <laughs> go to Scriptorium or check out Medieval. Scriptorium, what's that? Just like a. I guess it's a place where they did like translating and hmm. writing, you know, where a bunch of scribes would be in there furiously writing down books and stuff. Armies and armies <laughs> of translators. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could go to Falconry. Oh, yeah, that was in here. Falconry would be cool. Go to Four Humors. I wonder what those elements. are. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about like. Aqua, lava, sand, and God. Those are the four, right? <laughs> I don't know about that. There's the four elements, man. It's alchemy. There's the three you can see, and then the one that nobody knows what it is, so they just was like, okay, it's God. It turned it was, out it was air. I thought it was earth, wind, and fire. Yeah, there's the three elements, though. It's not four. And water. And is... <laughs> no. For some reason, water's not an element. <laughs> I don't know why, but it isn't. <laughs> Actually, no, I, it's, I'm, I'm lying. There is an element, I told you. Lava, aqua, sand, and God. <laughs> Those are the four. Could go to verso or recto. Ew. <laughs> Artisans could go to different um, artistic styles, like Byzantine, classical, Romanesque. Hmm. Could go to gothic, maybe jump our way back over to flamboyant somehow. <laughs> Stumble back through the back door <laughs> of flamboyance. Uh, something called Mudehar. If we went back through, uh, if we went back through Gothic, at that point we could just like take the other episode and just tack it onto the end of this <laughs> and just be done with this one. It'd be the True. same thing. <laughs> be a clip show. Yeah, yeah. You have like an intro and you think it's gonna be the real show, but then it's like, ah, oh, no, they're just showing us things from the past episodes. <laughs> but they they would never know. No, they wouldn't. We could, we could do a clip show, and people would be none the wiser. It's true. As long as like the articles interacted somehow, they'd have to <laughs> jump. Didactic. Got Islamic Empire, or we could go to Persia. Oh, there's always a link to Persia, and Persia's it always it. redirects to Iran. And we're always disappointed. <laughs> Rest in Persia. <laughs> could go to Latin, but I'd rather not go to Latin. You can go to Arabic. <laughs> But I'd rather I, not go to Arabic. Iberia. That's a peninsula. I don't know. I wonder if they have any, uh, like, examples of scriptoriums. Examples of scriptoriums? Well, we might as well check like, it out. Like I want to know. If we go to scriptorium, then we could see. I want to know what a scriptorium is anyway, <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, scriptorium is literally a place for writing. So, yep, it's where usually in a monastery, um, but it's just people sitting in a room, copying stuff, copying books endlessly. Written accounts, surviving buildings, and 
archaeological excavations all show, however, that contrary to popular belief, such rooms rarely existed. Mm. Most monastic writing was done in cubicle-like recesses in the <laughs> cloister or in the monk's own cells. Mm. References in modern scholarly writings to scriptoria more usually refer to the collective written output of a monastery rather than to a physical room. Uh, They're usually in conjunction with libraries. Where you found a library, you would find a scriptorium. Which makes sense, because you wouldn't want to transport all those books too far. No, just like write them down, throw them up on a shelf. Okay, done. Oddly enough, by the time movable type printing presses were invented in the 15th century, the concept of a scriptorium was obsolete. Hmm. So it says... There were provisions for hypocausts beneath the floors to keep the spaces dry in Roman libraries, but I don't know what a hypocaust is. I don't either. Do they have a link to that? There is a link to it. Well, let's go there. Sounds interesting. Okay. Let's see here. Hypocaust. Oh, wow. Ancient Roman system of underfloor heating. Uh, what? (laughs) Man, those ancient Romans, they already had everything. They do. They do have everything. They used hypocaust to heat houses with hot air. The word derives from the ancient Greek hypo, meaning under, and cost, meaning burnt, as in caustic. Mm. Caustic burn, man. <laughs> I didn't know hypo meant under. Hypo... Th- hypodermic needle? Uh, hypo... Glycemic? Hypo... Under... You're under, you're under glycemed. <laughs> you're too little glycemiad. Hypoactive? I guess, yeah, yeah, hypo is under, hyper is over. Right. Yeah. So, how hypocausts work? Uh, the floor was raised above the ground by pillars called pile stacks with a layer of tiles. Then a layer of concrete. Then another of tiles on top and spaces were left inside the walls so that hot air and smoke from the furnace would pass through these enclosed areas and out of flues in the roof thereby heating but not polluting the interior of the room Hmm. ceramics box tiles were placed inside the walls to both remove the hot burned air and to heat the walls rooms requiring the most heat were placed closest to the furnace whose heat could be increased by adding more wood to the fire. It was labor-intensive to run the hypocaust as it required constant attention to tend the fire and expensive fuel to keep it going. Hmm. It's really interesting, the cutaway pictures of this stuff, though. Yeah. See lots of, like, tiles underneath floors. Hmm. Apparently, um, Vitruvius describes their construction and operation in his work, De Architectura, in about 15 BC. So he wrote a book back then about how to build things. Here's something even crazier. In the 1980s, they uncovered a large castle complex in the Republic of Georgia from 200 to 400 BC that had a well-preserved hypocaust. Oh, wow. And, crazier still, 
dating back to 1000 BC, Korean houses have traditionally used andal, which I don't know what that is, to provide floor heating on similar principles as the hypocaust, drawing smoke from a wood fire typically used for cooking. And andal heating was common in Korean homes until the 60s. Huh. Wow. It's a good 3,000 years almost. Hey, you know, they got their money's worth. I wonder if you can find copies of De Architectura. Is there a link to De? Oh, yeah, there is. There is, yeah. Well, we might as well go see what we can see about that. Very tiny text. Says that the book is one of the most important sources of modern knowledge of Roman building methods as well as the planning and designs of structures, both large and small, from aqueducts, buildings, baths, and harbors to machines, measuring devices, and instruments. This book has it all. Yeah, written by Roman architect Vitruvius. Oh, cool. Who was the architect for um, Caesar Augustus. Neat. So we have a lot of big names being thrown around here. Not least among which is that this book is also the prime source of the famous story of Archimedes sitting in his bath and having his Eureka discovery. Huh. In which he discovered the idea of volume. Wow. Yep, that's where this comes from. <laughs> so that is that just an invented story that this Vitruvius came up with to illustrate the concept? Or is it a It's a it's a yeah, it's a, it's ar- attributed to Archimedes, but it's not necessarily a true story. Hmm. So what we came here to figure out was whether or not this book was still able to be found today. And the answer is that thanks to Charlemagne, you could find it somewhere at the very least. Now, these texts were not just copied, but also known at the court of Charlemagne, since historian uh, Bishop Einhard asked for explanations of some technical terms at the visiting English churchman Alcuin. In addition, a number of individuals are known to have read the text or have been indirectly influenced by it, including, uh, I don't know any of these people. Albertus Hugo Magnus. St. Victor sounds familiar. St. Victor, Petrarch, I know Petrarch. Giovanni de Dandi. And St. Thomas Aquinas, there's one. That's a big name. Yeah. Says many copies existed from the 8th to 15th centuries, and 92 are still available in public collections from during the Middle Ages, but they appear to have received little attention, possibly due to the obsolescence of many specialized Latin terms used by Vitruvius, and the loss, the loss of most of the original ten illustrations thought by some to be helpful in understanding parts of the text. Hmm. So apparently it had a big impact during the Renaissance. Um, the architects of the time rediscovered the, the book, and it helped them build all their renaissance buildings. Not only that, but it seems to have influenced the art of the time as well. There's a picture here that was from a 1500s edition of De Architectura that has a picture of a man that looks a lot like uh, the one that Da Vinci would later become famous for. The one with the guy who's kind of like doing a jumping jack and has the circles all around him. This guy's not quite doing a jumping jack. He's just sort of holding his arms open, and there's a bunch of diamonds around him instead of circles, but still pretty cool. Hmm. And wouldn't you know it, Leonardo da Vinci's drawing is called the Vitruvian Man. How about it? It all comes back to the day architecture as it, would ha- as it would happen. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting discovery we've made. Hmm. Oh, cool. 
Um, they talk about the water clock. I believe we've mentioned this before. We have in our talk about hydraulics, I believe. Yes? I think so, yeah. But this is... It mentions the water clock, but they call this the stereographic projection. And... It is a clock that had a rotating field of stars behind a wireframe indicating the hours of the day. And, yeah. So, it was like a big star system that worked as a clock. That sounds really cool. It does sound cool. I would really enjoy having one of those in my home, (laughs) but I guess I would also have to use that as, like, the means of light for it to really work Uh, super great. True. I wouldn't be opposed to that. (laughs) <laughs> kind of cool to just like walk around in a constant days of space type thing. Yeah. What is plum bum? Because I what? see that under the materials heading, um, it says here, Vitruvius advised that lead should not be used to conduct drinking water, clay pipes being preferred. Um, and then he comes to the conclusion that... Uh, basically, lead causes illnesses. Um, but it says in the plumbum foundries, um, that's where he discovered the um, illnesses and his laborers. And isn't plumbium another name for lead? Plumbum. Yeah, pretty sure it is. I it's guess. like the maybe like the ore from which lead is uh, smelted. Ah, it does redirect to lead. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't know why I know that. Legitimately have no clue. I just remember like being like, <laughs> "This is a dumb word." Whenever I saw it the first time, and I was like, "Oh, it just means lead." Great. So it's a dumb word, <laughs> and it doesn't even mean anything other than something that's a better word to describe <laughs> it. Does I mean it's a useless well, thing? Yeah, I don't know why they. S- use that word in here. Plumbum. Unless maybe like that's the word, the word that know. they used back in the book. Might have maybe. been. I don't know. But yeah, he made this discovery in BC. BC. And it wasn't until 1986 that the United States banned the use of lead in plumbing due to lead poisonings, neurological damage. God, we're such... <laughs> <laughs> idiots. How did we not? The, we stupid. literally God. had thousands I mean, of years of we knowing knew. this. We just <laughs> knew, and we just didn't do anything. Oh, man. If I take my mouth any further away from the microphone, I'm going to scream. Okay. This is a good way to keep calm. Just relax. We only knew about it for thousands of years. It's fine. It's not the only thing we knew about for thousands of years and did nothing about. <laughs> It won't be the last. It's going to be okay. <sighs> okay. We're back. Okay. We're back. So there's something here called a dewatering machine. Dewatering machine, you say? Yeah. It's a device widely used for raising water to irrigate fields and dewater mines. Why dewater? I Oh, you know what I think it is? You dig a mine, you're like, oh. hey, there's all this water at the bottom. Yep. How are we going to do this? You take the water out of the mine. It's a pump. You have dewatered it. Yeah. 
So apparently it, it was originally an endless chain of buckets. Basically like a, you know, like a water wheel. Yeah, like a water wheel. You know, yeah. That makes sense. You can have an, a handy little illustration of um, water wheels found in the Spanish mine. Hmm. Back to hydraulics, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, once you get into, you know, ancient Roman architecture, then it's kind of hard to escape. Yeah, you can't really... I mean, you need it after a while. Mm -hmm. Eventually, you just kind of get back to hydraulics. You can't avoid it. There's no way <laughs> forward except through hydraulics. Oh. But how can we get out of here? I don't know. There's lots of places to go. Like to <laughs> where? Hermeneutics. Water clock. We gotta go to the water clock. I don't think we actually maybe. went to it last time. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. What or else we, we could got. go to the stereographic projection, which is that thing with the stars. That'd be cool. There is a link to that. Let's check that out real quick. Oh, it's a geography thing. Uh oh. It's not the actual device. Oh no. Uh oh. There's equations on this page. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. What have we done? <laughs> We've done math. Okay. I think okay. we've made a big mistake. Maybe. Let's see if we can't bring this one home. We might be able to. Uh, but we might just end up being confused for another 10 minutes or so. I don't know. I'm not really sure. Let's try our best to at least be give informative. the nutshell overview of what this is. Here. Be correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Think about this before we. Let's not just dive in headlong. <laughs> this talking fast will not make m us more right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it is a mapping function that projects a sphere onto a plane. The projection is defined on the entire sphere. Except at one point, the projection point. Where it is defined, the mapping is smooth and bijective. It is conformal, meaning that it preserves angles. It is neither isometric nor area preserving. That is, it preserves neither distances nor the areas of figures. Hmm. So... The stereographic projection is a way of picturing a sphere as the plane with some compromises because the sphere and the plane appear in many areas of mathematics and its applications. So does the stereographic projection. It finds use in diverse fields, including complex analysis, cartography, geology, photography. And in practice, the projection is carried out by computer or by hand using a special kind of graph paper called stereographic net, which is also known as stereo net or wolf net. <laughs> okay. So it's mapping a sphere onto a two-dimensional plane. Right. Okay. Kind of like making a world map of world the map. Earth. And it gets all funky because it's not in globe form. Right. It gets distorted. 
Like it said in the article, there are some inevitable compromises to this kind of uh, this kind of charting. Okay, well, I, I found a link or a word that I find funny. I don't know exactly what the context is, mm-hmm. but it is slick insides. Slick insides. <laughs> it doesn't seem to actually mention what the slick insides are. Says so all it says is similarly, a fault plane is a planner feature that may contain linear features such as slick insides. But is there a link? There is a link. Two slick insides. Wait, where's slick insides? <laughs> it is under geology. Geology. I think it's like if you take something and uh, cut it in half and there's like a slope, maybe. But either way, it's a way to get out of geometry. All right, well, I'm going to go see what slick insides are. Yeah, slick insides. Whoa, hey. Slick insides on a sample of sandstone from of the Juniata Formation from an outcrop on Route 322, which hey. is right outside our door, now <laughs> testify. That is true. Wow. Yeah. Who would have thought we would get a link to the very route that is literally right, next to right outside door. of the wikipedia chronicles headquarters. uh world headquarters <laughs> world headquarters here i almost feel like just jumping over to 322 Check yeah out. let's bring I mean, this podcast home yeah. by bringing it home yeah when are we ever going to get this chance again well whenever we get our article for our podcast validated <laughs> by wikipedia that's that's for one <laughs> All right, so U.S. Route 322. It's east-west highway, and it goes through Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. It is a spur of U.S. Route 22, and it's one of the original highways that was created in 1926. Wow. It's got some history. It is definitely has the longest stretch in Pennsylvania. Where it's 370 miles. Yeah, it runs from a little bit south of Erie, Pennsylvania, around Meadville, PA, is where it starts, going all the way down through Chester Township and uh, Chester City itself, and into New Jersey. Yeah, this, this road connects to a lot of roads. Oh, wow. We even got a link to Ephrata here. Whoa. The town that we are recording this podcast in. Whoa. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's bring it in, home. In, okay. <laughs> let's bring it home. <laughs> you know what would be crazy? What? If we... Got if there is a link... To the building. To the Royer building. <laughs> that we are recording in... Oh, man, that would be something else. Sites of interest. Close. Um, The main theater, that's just down the street. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get to the building that we're in. 
I don't think we'll get that specific, but you know what? That's okay. Yeah. That's fine. We're, we're close. We're pretty close. So we got um, some sites of interest here. Uh, the Mountain Springs Hotel, um, which for a long time it was completely abandoned. Yeah. The and entire time <laughs> I was alive. That place was creepy. Very creepy. Yep. And very... Pretty much a site for drug addicts and all kinds of cult rituals and yeah. all sorts of stuff. And then they tore it down and put up a Hampton Inn which, and an Applebee's. <laughs> which is fine, considering that that place was really, really creepy. Yes. Now, the I mean, the only shame of that thing being torn down was that for all of the dilapidation it had suffered, it was a really cool, large, mm. old building. Like, it yeah. was dominating in the effort of Skyline for how old it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, that was it was kind of a shame, but it was so far gone. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely on its last legs over there. But it was, for a time, also a hospital. Uh, in between being a hotel and being a uh, place for drug addicts. So that's kind of like the interim, I guess, between... <laughs> like, as far as business models go, it's like the interim between being a uh, place for drug addicts and yeah. a uh, hotel. <laughs> says here that the Effort of Maine Theater opened in 1938, showing a Shirley Temple movie, first and foremost. I didn't know the Effort of Maine Theater was there for quite that long. Hmm. Yeah. I knew they built it into the uh, Brossman Business Complex in the yeah. early 90s when they built that thing, but I thought it was only there since, like, the 70s or something. Huh. And, of course, we got the Ephrata Performing Arts Center. Classic. Classic. Great community theater mm-hmm. located in Ephrata, PA. Go support them. They are entirely donation-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's um, it's got a very unique kind of layout because it has, a, an like... A three-sided audience section around the stage. Yeah, think like a classic, almost globe-esque kind of theater. Mm-hmm. Surrounding the stage on all sides, with the stage being all but an island mm-hmm. in the midst of an audience. Wait, what? A tornado hit here? In 2009? Yeah. I did not know about that. I didn't either. I was Apparently, pretty sure I would have known, but... It was a strong one? <laughs> uh... Well, it said that it was an EF1 tornado, hmm. and I don't know what that means, but it's <laughs> not that bad. It's There's an EF0 is the only one below it, and oh. then it goes <laughs> up to EF5, so that's probably why we didn't hear about it. Yeah. Well, there were no fatalities. That's good. Just 30 homes were damaged, and 8 mobile homes were destroyed. Oh, well, <laughs> if, if that's all. Yeah. All right, well, I think that is a good place to stop things. Well, yeah, we stopped back where we started. (laughs) Yep. Where we actually are. From Lorenzo de Sepulveda to Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Pretty good. Yeah. I'll take it. Yeah, I'd say that's a successful run there. Yeah. And uh, if you enjoyed it, please visit facebook.com slash twcpodcast. Give us a like and follow. Head over to iTunes and rate and review us. And you can also find new episodes on our website, twc.erictoribio.com. I'd like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song. 
and the ambassadors for our outro song. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Boom. Done. Finished. Hey, Sarah. What's up? <laughs> Only guest host for the last five seconds of the... Do, do we put this part in? I do. Okay. I <laughs> We, find, we found a way to legit get back to Africa. I was hoping there would be a link to it. We were trying. <laughs> <laughs> we tried so hard, and we got so far. But in the end, Africa's pretty good. Yeah. I'll take Africa. Yeah, that works. It's good enough. For real. That was unprecedented. Starting with... We ended, it was a quick and swift descent, too. We were, like, we were stuck in... We were stuck in some sort of geometry. Yeah. And we were just like, how did we get our geometry? And then it was like, we clicked. Eric found this thing called, what was it, side? Side. Slick and sides. Slick and sides. And there was like an example from Route 322. And we were just like, okay. <laughs> we're leaving. We're making do haste out of here. Hey, Dribble. You want to say hi? Say hi. Meow. Uh, yeah, sort of. <laughs> that's, that's, that's. Good episodes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pull that one back from the shadow. Literally from the shadow. That's what we were talking about.